Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and today we're going to be discussing how data can help the world respond to humanitarian crises. This special episode is recorded at Wilton Park, a center for discussions on global issues on the south coast of England. It is here that the United Nations Center for Humanitarian Data has brought together aid workers, policymakers, and data scientists for a three-day meeting. The goal is to consider how aid groups can use data today what they get right, what they get wrong, and how they can use it in the future. The matter is vital. Data can be as valuable in crisis situations as water or medical care. It allows aid to be delivered at the right time and to the right people. But it can also be extremely dangerous. The same data misused or in the wrong hands could put vulnerable people at risk. So how should aid groups collect data, use it, and share it? And in an era in which companies have the technical edge, how can aid groups and the private sector work together? With me is Fran Bennett, a data scientist and co-founder of Mastodon C, which uses data to transform public services like health and education. Welcome, Fran. Thank you. Beside her is Andrew Trask. He leads Open Mind, an open source initiative that lets AI work in a way that protects privacy. Hello, Andrew. Hello. And finally, Stuart Campo is a senior fellow at the Center for Humanitarian Data. He has seen the impact of data in crises at first hand, working with the UN in over 35 countries. Stuart, thanks for joining us. Hello. Stuart, let's start with you. Why is data so important in humanitarian work? In brief, it's what allows us to deliver aid where it's needed to the people that need it most. The increase in the availability of data and the tools that we have to derive value and insight from data to target response has made us perhaps more effective, but not necessarily allowed us to tackle these problems in a more uh, comprehensive way. I think there's been a bit of a data deluge effect, and thinking about how that looks on the ground in a specific crisis context is both introducing new problems as much as it introduces new opportunities. So I want to talk about the problems and the opportunities, but first I want to get a real sense of where data is being used, how it's being used effectively on the ground. Can you give me an example? Sure. So I think a a major inflection point in how we as a community have been using data was in the 2014 Ebola response. This is happening in West Africa and a number of different countries. And the um, sheer amount of data that was available, the sheer number of systems that were deployed, and frankly, the expectations that came with that were staggering. And the community had never dealt with a response of that magnitude or a response with that much data. What we were trying to do was understand the context and the nature of that quite unique outbreak, the needs of people and where they were, and the type of assistance that was required. And data was essential to all of those different dimensions. Now, Fran, you've been thinking about these issues for a while, working with the private sector and the public sector as well. 
Where do you see the opportunities? I think there are enormous opportunities in the sector. As Stuart said, better allocating resources. I've seen examples in, for example, work with Datakind UK, where I'm a trustee. Um, They do a lot of work in the UK with people like food banks, and they've recently been working with food banks using their data to predict which recipients might be in need of further help and get ahead of that by offering it earlier. So looking at things like their pattern of visits, their personal characteristics, the reason they were referred at this particular moment in time, you can put those together and create a risk score based on patterns that you've seen in the past, which enables you to then sort through the people that you have right now and say, well, if I've only got a limited amount of support I can give, who should I give it to? And I can see a direct analogue for that in humanitarian situations, although it's much more challenging to build and deliver those models in that context, there's still an an important point in getting the aid to the people who need it most as quickly as possible. Now, Andrew, you've done similar work in the private sector as well. How do the developments in the private sector feed into how aid groups can be more effective? Um, Well, it turns out the private sector is is quite good at exploring new technologies and new opportunities that that might not um, be immediately obvious. So it ends up just being a really good testing ground for what is actually sort of effective and and also lowering the cost of being able to deploy those um, in in rapid fashion. What are the challenges? What are some of the mistakes that you see happening in the private sector that the humanitarian sector should be aware of? Uh, The biggest challenge is the belief that in order to answer a question in a data set, you actually need to have access to the raw values in that data set. So um, increasingly, we're seeing more technology that facilitates the ability for a data set to to not move. And so if if I need to answer a question in someone else's data, for me to instead bring my analytics and my my question-answering mechanisms to the data set instead of bringing the data set to me. That allows the data set to move less. It allows data set owners to maintain governance for a longer period of time. That sounds quite high-end and sort of bleeding edge in terms of how you would do data analysis. I don't think the humanitarian sector is there yet. Stuart, are they? I think in some ways we are. I think we're farther along than maybe it looks from the outside. And I think certainly the efforts to bring more data together in a structured way and focus on quality and cleanliness have really advanced in the last few years, partially out of large responses where we see exactly this problem of either asking for everything because we're not sure what data we need or having data collected in a way that you can't actually derive insight across multiple data assets because it's just too messy. Some efforts like the Humanitarian Data Exchange, which the Center for Humanitarian Data manages, are really helping to bring data together and allow us to see also where the gaps are in terms of how we're using that data practically in crises. I would love to see us collecting less data but better data and data that can enable better response without throwing the kitchen sink at a particular question. And Fran, you've been working in the sector applying data. What are some of the benefits that you've seen when you've shared data? And how has it been easy or difficult to get organizations to share data? Sharing data is typically quite a fraught and difficult business, particularly when it's potentially disclosive data. Um, It's just extremely sensitive. So actually, I would say often the right route is not initially to try and get people to share data. Often the right route is initially to say, have we done the most with the data that we have within our organization? And that's often not the case. So to take an example from local government work with Mastodon C, we built um, projection models for special educational need demand. Um, So in the UK, the law is that if a child has a formal diagnosis of special educational needs, they have to have a school place which is suitable for them and they have to be transported to that place. Um, So the local authority needs to provide the right schools and teachers in the right places at a particular moment. That's quite tough to do. Um, And one way you can do it is by actually taking historic data on your pupils and what trajectories they followed, turning that into a simulation of what the future might look like and what the probability bounds are on that. 
and then using that to decide on your school building. Now, that doesn't require any sharing of data. It's purely using a data asset that's already there but wasn't considered as data. It was considered as administrative information. And that's actually got quite a lot of practical strategic value for an organisation. I, I suspect within the humanitarian sector we have exactly the same kind of situation where people are not yet maximising their own data assets, so they don't know why they should share. They can't see what it looks like to benefit from data yet. Now, Stuart, I see you nodding. Why don't you come in on this? Well, what I love about how Fran just described that use case is that there was a clear application of data that was already on hand and a new analytical approach to deriving value to take an action. That's often lacking in the humanitarian sector because we get fascinated with shiny objects and we think about the promise of technology that we may not fully understand and really invest in kind of chasing toward it rather than starting with the question of what might we do once we have better insight or faster data or certain techniques that enable us to derive more value. And so part of the challenge we face is being very clear from the beginning about what problem we're trying to solve or what question we're trying to answer. And I think that our counterparts in the private sector can and should help us navigate that rather than adding to the confusion by perhaps sort of pushing the promise without helping us really understand practically what these technologies can enable. One of the questions that we've had from the audience is, how do you reconcile using the data that's been collected in the past, historical data, with the sort of fundamental principle of data privacy of purpose limitation that you are only using it for the specific purpose that it was collected for? I think it's important to distinguish in this case between truly personal data and pseudonymized or anonymized data. So very often, you're right, Like it, it's not appropriate or okay to use personal identifiable data for a purpose other than that which it was collected for, because that was not the deal. However, that aggregate data can be used, and, and under at least the, the legislation that I'm familiar with, is, is allowed to be used to reveal patterns which can help you in future to make better decisions, to allocate resources better. Um, so I'd say you, you do have to, of course, respect the rights of people and what you asked for at the point of collection. That doesn't mean that there is never anything to be gained from historical data other than why you collected it in the first place, as long as you're very careful about anonymity and re-identifiability. Is there a risk by using data so much that the funders, the, the countries that actually support humanitarian groups, are going to want ever more data to justify the practices, and therefore an aid group that delivers food or delivers water or delivers health care is going to be running around in circles just providing data to deliver back to the funders and losing sight of their core mission of getting the water to the people who are thirsty? Is that a rhetorical question, Ken? I think <laughs> the, the reality is... Yes, there is certainly a risk of that, if not a reality in some response environments. And it's not just the funders or the partners that are causing that. There's also internal pressure to be more accountable and more precise in demonstrating the actual impact of assistance. So as you increase the complexity of how you design your interventions, the expectation that you're even more rigorous in showing impact, even if we're not quite there yet in terms of clear models to do so, is, is ever increasing. And I think this probably isn't unique to the humanitarian space in terms of the expectation of demonstrating clear impact and value. If we look back to our friends in Silicon Valley and think about shareholder expectations, those are probably as high, if not higher, than donor expectations. But it's, it's often not a conversation we have in terms of the ROI on a partnership or an investment in tech in the humanitarian space as it relates to what companies are maybe trying to show in terms of results. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You know, it's interesting because the technologies are always racing ahead of our ability to understand what they are, their limitations, how they work, and how to regulate them. And that's a problem in the private sector. It's probably a worse problem in the humanitarian sector. But Andrew, you've been thinking long and hard about that. How do you future-proof the use of technology to make sure that you're using it for one purpose, but it doesn't get ahead of you? I think the main way that you can future-proof it is by trying to model what the supply chain um, is, is going to look like in the future. And to the extent that, because if you know who's going to sort of own the key assets, even if you don't quite know how the technology is going to evolve, you can have some influence over, you know, whether so it's, it's centralized control or whether there are proper checks and balances uh, across sort of multiple individual actors controlling these kind of powerful resources. Uh, and that allows you to sort of have lower variance on the, the potential misuse uh, by, by virtue of the fact that sort of people's intentions change slower than necessarily kind of technology. And Fran, what about you? How do you see this? I would look at it slightly differently, actually. Um, So I I think a lot of the accidents or misuses come from uh, the people in, for example, the humanitarian sector, using solutions and and not having a full picture of uh, potential problems with those solutions or with the the pitfalls, which are are known to the technical people in the room. So I think it's about having the leadership uh, within these organisations, having sufficient understanding of what what these kinds of things are, um, how they can go well, how they can go badly, to be questioning and challenging the technologists about what what this is, what it does, how it works. Um, they don't need to be writing code, but they do need to be able to be challenging strong customers. Stuart? I absolutely agree, but I would also argue that there's a responsibility on the side of the tech counterparts to be upfront and articulating that, because what we've seen is a solutionism in the sector, for sure, where we get excited about what we're told technology might help us do. And we also don't feel like we have the expertise, which you're rightfully calling for, to question, you know, is it really going to work that way? Or isn't that maybe risky? And so it's about both of us, I think, as kind of the humanitarian sector and our private sector counterparts, raising the bar on how we talk frankly with each other and really put everything on the table before we get into a deployment. Because experimentation in a humanitarian setting is simply not acceptable. And we shouldn't be deploying and testing solutions before we're confident about how they will work and know that we can actually prevent the harm that they might cause. Can you give me an example of what those harms are? Is there an incident in which a humanitarian group, well-meaning, experimented with a technology only to find out it didn't work so well? This is the question of our time, Ken, because the documentation of these harms is limited to say, you know, to be generous. There are a couple cases that come to mind, and we always refer to the same two studies, frankly. One comes from Sudan, looking at the use of satellite imagery for human rights monitoring and how information products that were produced through that project were actually used for targeting of communities, certainly not the intention of a human rights monitoring activity. The other might not qualify as a harm, but certainly would qualify as irresponsible, if not illegal, activity. And this was in the Ebola response around the negotiation of access to call detail records, CDRs. And there's a good study on this from Sean Martin McDonald talking about 
the so-called big data disaster that this really constituted, because again, we were racing ahead of ourselves, excited about the promise of what this data and the analytical technique could enable without fully understanding the legal and practical implications. Let's talk a bit about this, because The Economist reported that issue extensively and came to, I think, a different conclusion. We felt that the call detail records would be actually a very important tool to understand where the disease was, where it was spreading, how quickly, among what populations, using what transport routes. So instead of saying, you know, if people were going to another city, putting the aid project in that city, you reach them en route to that city before they infect a new population. So it seems like there's a lot to play for, a huge opportunity. But you come to a different conclusion. You see the potential risks. Well, I'm not a lawyer, but the assessment was more from that rights-based approach, which frankly is the foundation of humanitarian action. And so we thought the same things that you just described in terms of the potential value. And one of the things that got in the way of realizing that value and maybe balancing the risk with the expected benefit was that it took so long for the community to understand the regulatory environment in as far as it existed, which varied from one country to the next, and negotiate access that it was almost too late in the response for that value to be derived. And the CDRs were not accessed in all three of the country contexts either, so we don't have great evidence of the positive impact. But I would just say that part of the assessment of the potential is also knowing concretely what good this can enable. And that was lacking here. There's been a lot of great work done around the use of CDRs since then, looking at how we prepare to use that type of data ahead of potential crises rather than scrambling and maybe getting it wrong in the midst. So we have an Ebola crisis unfolding right now. What should we be doing with data that we're not doing? I'd love to turn that question to the other panelists first to think about what models we might derive in terms of analytical techniques, if I may. That's a great way to dodge the question. It is, yes. (laughs) But I 100% support it. Andrew, you've been thinking about this. Go for it. You did list a couple of the sort of negative side effects of the two previous use cases you mentioned, one being that information leaked to someone who wanted to use it in a malicious way. Um, And I think this this comes back to to one thing that we touched on very briefly, which was there's a simple question you should ask about your data whenever you're talking with a technologist. Is my data going to leave my organization? Am I going to maintain meaningful control over the only copy of my information? Um, and if the answer is, is, is no, then you should explore new tools because there are new tools and techniques that, that offer more options than I think most people are, are aware of. Uh, and so I think that's the, the good thing is, so you made a great point earlier about how um, being able to make sure people are well informed about the tools they're using and what they're doing with their data. And like that, that education is a really important piece of maintaining um, good use. But, but I think that there are actually some simple questions because you know, there's a simple interface. You know, is data leaving my organization? Is it leaving my governance or is it not? Um, and and if, if, it's, if you're accepting more risk than you'd like to be, um, are there other options on the table that haven't been mentioned yet? Fran? I mean, I, I think those are excellent points is about control of data. I was just thinking about some of the other pitfalls and that there's something which has come around quite a few times, which I can see, I haven't yet seen in the humanitarian sector, and I, I think we might, which ties back to what I was saying before about education of leadership. Um, so there's a thing called the base rate fallacy, which has shown up a bunch of times in public sector contexts. Um, I won't go through all the mathematical detail, but basically it means that you're, if you're trying to spot a rare thing, even if you've got an absolutely excellent predictive model, uh, you will have a lot of false positives. So most of the cases that you pick up will be false positives. Now, in a medical context, screening for cancer, that's okay. You pick up lots of false positives, but you know that you've got 
almost all the people who do have cancer, and great, you, you find them and sort them out. Um, we've seen a number of times already in things like policing and enforcement contexts, those models again being sold in and used with the vendors truly saying, yes, this is an extremely accurate model, which is true. Um, but that gets interpreted to mean most of the people that it picks up are going to be bad people in this case. And that's not true because of the mathematics of the situation. And I, I can imagine, you know, building some predictive models to predict important things in this kind of case. Maybe people who have Ebola and you're trying to track and find find out who's at risk. And there's, there is a possibility that on the ground it's not understood, the risk of false positives or even what false positives are, which could lead to some really dire consequences. So I just wanted to raise that as an example of thing, the sorts of things to be aware of when, when making smart use of data. How can the humanitarian sector tap into the best minds uh, in the private sector so that they can become informed and educated and better at what they do? Is there a way, is there a transmission mechanism for that? There is a whole tech for good sector which is eager to be involved. I mean, there, there are an awful lot of very smart people working in, in a number of sectors who, who also want to be able to contribute to, to these very important missions. So there is a, an enormous wish within the tech sector to help and to do things well. Can you imagine a world in which the humanitarian sector leads the public sector more generally in terms of using data? Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, they're doing such a tough job. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine how they can overcome all the things they are already dealing with and be leaders. Um, but that would be amazing, right? To, to be a little bit pessimistic on, on that, unfortunately, I think when you mentioned earlier that they're just, you know, experimentation is sort of unacceptable, that's probably one thing that's quite challenging. In the public sector, you can do lots of experimentation. You know, startups start and fail, and this is sort of expected that this is a very risk-tolerant environment. Um, so there's, there's uh, maybe the, a more productive question would be sort of how can we take lessons learned in these sort of risk-tolerant environments and transfer them over into these kind of risk-averse environments more, more liquidly and more, more quickly. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I shouldn't be quite so hard lying about it because the it's that experimentation without a clear you know, ethical approach and sense of the how to manage the risks. That's what shouldn't be happening. And that, frankly, in the humanitarian tech space has been kind of the norm because we, we don't necessarily have the clear frameworks to assess you know, the ethical implications of testing or deploying a technology that might not be proven in a new environment. But absolutely, there's possibility to do that together, as long as we're clear about how to mitigate the risks and kind of control um, without putting people at farther risk. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because I think that technologists by by default are just, they're optimistic, risk-tolerant people. Um, that's just sort of the nature of the culture. And they're, I think, by default, also very socially-minded um, but uh, I think it's it's quite natural. Like if we were to collaborate together, I would be very risk tolerant more more than I, I would by default without your sort of correction to sort of guide me in the level of risk that we can take on in, in a project. One of the questions from the audience is the idea that the humanitarian sector doesn't always have the technical skills and the know-how to do the work that's required with data. They would like to reach out to the private sector, but of course the big technology platforms haven't done themselves any favors. They're usually on the back foot because of privacy violations and other problems that makes it look like their effort to work with the humanitarian sector is a chance to whitewash their reputations. So how does this story end? How can you work together in a reasonable way? Should you? Stuart? I think we should, but with caution. And what that looks like for me is first being frank and open with each other about what we're actually trying to get out of these partnerships or service agreements. And it can be either of those two. Talking about the the kind of old approach of CSR and showing that you're doing good and giving back 
shouldn't be the driver for engaging with the humanitarian sector. We need to be clear about how your services can help us solve a problem. And maybe that is more as a service provider and not a partner, because I think it gets slippery in that partnership space. Andrew? So I think there's two strategies that you can take. And the first is sort of the long game. And this is the, basically a, an asset allocation that is really important, and that's education. Um, so right now, I mean, if, if I talk to the average technologist in the street, they're very socially minded and they're super keen to be able to help with these kinds of crises, but they don't really know where to engage. As far as more short-term things in, in lieu of there still being a shortage of technical talent, there are new tools that are trying to make it so that you can, you can collaborate with someone and they can, they can provide a you know, machine learning or AI service to you without you necessarily having to trust them with governance over your information. With older technologies uh, and perhaps ones that are still in use today, the assumption was, you know, okay, if they're going to help me process my data, they're also going to store it and they're also going to have governance over it. And with the, the new tools, in particular the ones that, that we spend a lot of time working on, um, that assumption is, I, I don't think, valid. And in the future, those will be entirely decoupled. Giving someone governance of your data will be totally different than them being a service provider helping you process it. Um, and I think that just, it just lowers the amount of trust you need to have with someone to collaborate with them, and that means you can do more great things. Uh, and uh, the private sector, in, in particular, also has very strong incentives to mature that kind of technology. Stuart, Francine, Andrew, it's great to have you on Babbage. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> That's all for this episode of Babbage. Thank you to my panel, Fran Bennett, Andrew Trask, and Stuart Campo. Also, thanks to OCHA, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs and its Center for Humanitarian Data. We also thank Wilton Park, which is an executive agency of the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. It hosts strategic discussions on issues of international security, prosperity and justice with leaders from politics, business, academia and the media. This event was recorded at the beautiful 16th century Whiston House. And remember, if you like our journalism and want to read more, go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and amid the rolling hills of West Sussex, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.